Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, uh, I am Alex Dawson. I'm the UK Politics and Policy Practice Lead here at Global Council, and I'm delighted that you're going to be joining us for our podcast today, uh, where we're going to be discussing doing things differently which is kind of wrapping up our series of conversations, podcasts, calls and events over the issue of EU-UK divergence post-Brexit. I'm delighted to be joined today by Joe Armitage, the lead analyst in UK politics here at Global Council, and Lila Howson-Smith, a senior associate in the UK politics and policy team. Uh, Both my colleagues, Joe and Lila, have uh, experience in government. Joe's recently returned from a secondment with the business department, Uh, And Lila, before joining Global Council, was a special advisor in the Northern Ireland office and the WIPS office. It's been six months since the end of the transition period, six months since the trade and cooperation agreement with the European Union uh, was signed by UK government ministers. uh, And really, the last six months have seen where the rubber has actually hit the road with Brexit. And it's where we started to see some actual areas of divergence between the UK and the EU. For about three, four, five years, really, after the Brexit vote, uh, the prospect of divergence was the thing that kept politicians up at night, policymakers. Um, and a lot of the discussions and the debates after the Brexit vote, leading up to the Article 50 declaration, leading up to the final end of the UK's membership of the EU's regulatory orbit, uh, was concerned with how regulation would diverge and would be different after Brexit. So now, after six months of experiencing it, we're going to talk briefly about some of the trends that we can observe from it, how businesses and investors should think about uh, divergence in future, and what the prospects are for the UK's divergence from the EU over the next few years. So, Joe, we started focusing on this um, at GC a long time ago, and we've sort of highlighted some areas uh, where we thought there was a good opportunity for divergence between the UK and the EU, where policymakers were making kind of warm noises about it, whether it be life sciences and medicine, whether it was technology, whether it was financial services, energy policy, agriculture policy. And clearly there have been a few quick wins that the government ministers have introduced, such as um, uh, zero rating VAT on sanitary products, whether it is ending the limit on contactless payments. So no longer have to be limited to spending £45 without entering a pin on a chip and pin machine. Um, But is that the sum total of doing things differently that we've seen so far? Well, no, I I don't think so. I mean, you could look at three additional areas, for example. Uh, We've seen, for example, uh, a consultation on gene editing uh, to overcome an ECGA judgment, which restricts its use in farming, for example, which could increase the productivity of farming if you have cattle with better genes. Uh, Secondly, we've seen very recently, actually, Uh, a non-rollover trade deal, the first one that the UK has negotiated between the UK and Australia. Uh, Details obviously are being fleshed out, but that could reduce uh, costs for consumers. Obviously, there are other factors that could be uh, disadvantageous uh, for domestic industry, particularly agriculture. But I think the guiding principle of this government particularly is consumers. And then I guess thirdly, uh, and perhaps the most substantially, is the reform to the immigration system. Uh, And obviously that is working very differently now. And the evidence is that employers are having to increase wages uh, for domestic workers. 
in certain sectors because of the cutting off of EEA migrants. And that's clearly negative for them. But I guess, as I said before, the general view of the government is that bringing about an increase in wages for the lowest paid uh, is something that is politically beneficial. So we are seeing different choices being made and we are seeing um, differences already emerging, whether it's in financial services, life sciences, agricultural policy, trade policy, as you mentioned. I mean, how much of this is really kind of cutting through, though? I mean, Lila, is there anything that you've kind of observed you know, in your interaction with clients and what we are covering on a day to day basis where there, where there has been kind of a very significant set of changes? Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing with doing things differently is is it encompasses quite a broad church of different policy choices. For example, the most kind of impactful consequence, arguably, of of our choices to diverge from the EU is on vaccines. But interestingly, that was not actually a kind of explicitly a political decision. You know, a new regulator was created as a consequence of the UK's exit from the EU and, and the desire to regulate medicines differently and vaccine differently. But it was ultimately the new regulator's choice, independent of government, to take a different approach to, to the EU regulator. Um, and I think that's quite an interesting one because it, it, it says more about the structures that have been created outside of, um, as a consequence of divergence than maybe explicit government choices. So you might compare that with I would argue one of the other very visible changes of um, that have happened as a result of leaving the EU, which is um, the, the zero v rating of um, VAT on sanitary products, as you mentioned, which is kind of a much more explicit example of the UK government looking at the levers that it's got available to them and making kind of political decisions that it thinks kind of signals their values and also kind of impacts consumers on that on that basis. And, and that was a sort of intention outlined all the way back in sort of 2016. So I think we're kind of looking across the piece at, at quite a lot of different types of change, which is kind of why we initially thought about looking at specifically kind of different sectors. So yeah, I mean, arguably there are kind of, I mean, you the way you kind of characterised it there, sort of suggestion that there's a, there's a kind of a political divergence where it is looking to kind of grab voters' attention and it is looking to um, make a point about the UK's future outside the EU. And then there's a kind of secular divergence where probably, you know, back in 2016, it's nothing that would ever be necessarily put on the side of a bus. Um, but you end up because you've got different structures, because you've got different regulators, because politics changes, time moves on, you end up with uh, the EU and the UK doing things differently, kind of as a consequence of just the natural way of things. I want to kind of talk a little bit about the area where there haven't been changes, where so far the UK and the EU have chosen not to do things differently. Lila, I mean, could you just sketch out some of the areas where perhaps people were expecting there to be greater changes uh, ahead of the UK's exit from the transition period uh, and where and how and why that hasn't come to pass so far? Yeah, I think, I think there are a couple of instances where the UK was kind of waiting to see what happened in its kind of future relationship with the EU to assess the possible extent of the divergence that that they wanted to pursue so kind of I think two quite good examples of, of that are sort of in in financial services but also in the sort of tech and data um, sector so I think on financial services we've kind of obviously seen 
um, a kind of reducing appetite to pursue equivalent. The MOU has sort of been delayed. So, but I, but I think that wasn't immediately necessarily clear as soon as um, as soon as we left the EU. And I think that is now kind of working its way through government and particularly sort of treasury policy making. And clearly, um, there is they're considering the types of sort of reform it wants to pursue on its on that basis. Um, and I think a, obviously a couple of areas that we've seen a bit focus on have been um, reform of the Solvency II regime and, and MIFID. And I think we now are kind of at, at the point that the sort of Treasury needs to, will, will re reveal their hand in terms of um, the exact extent of that divergence. But for kind of quite obvious reasons, it, that possibly wasn't as clear early on. Similarly, I think kind of an equal and opposite effect has occurred in um, in data where we've obviously had the data adequacy decision now, but um, what that has meant is I think the UK government has slightly waited to determine the extent of the divergence it wants to pursue because clearly um, it now needs to kind of remain compliant with GDPR and there will be targeted reforms that the UK can still pursue perhaps to sort of lessen the extent of regulation on businesses but they're going to have to think about this in kind of quite creative ways to ensure that their that, that um, data adequacy decision is, is is respected so I think there's there was a sort of need to understand the kind of guardrails or the extent to which um the uk could could or or not even could i think it's more that it was in the uk's interest to diverge um in advance of of setting that out i think there are clearly a number of areas where where the uk is 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 already pursuing both kind of um legislation and sort of strategies which signal its intention to diverge which i'm sure joe joe will talk about so, so yeah, I mean, you've got a you've got a technical barrier to divergence, uh, which is the fact that when it comes to uh, financial regulation, for instance, you need to know what the playing field looks like, uh, and also you've kind of got to bring in house kind of a great deal of uh, regulatory policy making expertise that the UK government didn't necessarily have or had been used to the Commission having uh, for, for for decades prior to um, the UK's exit. But Joe, I mean, do you just want to expand a little bit on Lila's point around other reasons why divergence may have stalled? Are there, is there more, more of a political story about the UK kind of choosing not to choose a different path so far? Yeah, I, mean, I think there's a bit of that, uh, although I think primarily it is because the areas most ripe for divergence will take a lot of time uh, to progress through Whitehall's policymaking sausage factory. But some areas, as you mentioned there are quite politically oriented and actually attached quite closely to the Prime Minister's former advisor Dominic Cummings uh, and I guess there are two key areas in that sort of space the first one is on state aid uh, we know there's going to be a bill on that soon there was a green paper at the end of last year and I think this was the issue that ultimately meant that the UK EU trade negotiations went right down to the wire uh, because the UK wanted to have the maximum uh, degree of flexibility in this area. And I think our understanding is that number 10 wanted to use the greater flexibility uh, to do things like, for example, provide more seed funding for R&D activities. Uh, at the moment, the lifetime limit that a company can receive is about £20 million. But if that were increased, uh, then you would be able to potentially achieve a lot more levelling up, uh, which is clearly, you know, what is driving 
the government and you can't do that inside the, U- the EU's state aid rules. But I think generally on state aid, the greatest benefit perhaps in this regard with respect to Brexit is that all the processes relating to the EU state aid regime, such as the need to conduct a balancing test or a market, marketing uh, or a market assessment in relation to the provision of grants, that all falls away. Uh, and that took about six to 12 months to conduct. But now the government can just immediately announce uh, the grants or uh, special um, solutions for industries. I guess the second point would be on procurement reform. Uh, and that, again, very closely tied to Dominic Cummings. And I think the intention he had was to award contracts to smaller business, you know, over large businesses, which we typically see in particular areas that the government wants to level up. And you could have, for example, the awarding of a contract to a business in a particular sector in a particular area, and that company could act as an anchor uh, to attract uh, additional investment to the area they wanted to level up. But I guess the question now is, to what extent will there still be this explicit link between procurement and levelling up? Because I think there will be some sensitivities in government. You know, you've got to remember that the officialdom is actually uh, the accounting officers uh, of the government and its spending. Uh, And I think that they will have some apprehension about having procurement uh, decisions that are too politically oriented in nature. I mean, so this paints a little bit of a story, though, as well, of the UK government trying to get its own house in order to try and work out how it best can do, how it best can use the powers that it's obtained since Brexit in order to kind of drive the policy goals that they want to see, whether it's a a more responsive state, a state that's better able to support certain industries and sectors, uh, a state that is better at using the procurement system to um, uh, support SMEs or support particular kind of policy goals. I mean, how much of this has been hindered by the fact that, uh, you know, we've had the COVID crisis ongoing still over this last six months, and we still had actually a lot of uh, issues when it comes to the border at Northern Ireland uh, and and the kind of the, the withdrawal agreement issues that are coming out of that, Joe. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's certainly possible to read a bit too much into that. Although, you know, having just come out of government myself working in the business department, there's no doubt that officials have been all hands to the pump on those factors that you cite, such as the exiting of the um, EU implementation um, period uh, and, uh, of course, COVID uh, and a lot of the cabinet subcommittees that are receiving the most attention and requiring uh, the most work from civil servants uh, are on exactly those issues, you know, with the XO committee and and the COVID um, committee of cabinet. But I think, as we've said already throughout this call, there has been a lot of stuff put into motion uh, through the policymaking machine. And that might be, you know, through calls for evidence, it might be through consultations, etc. You can't really make policy on the fly. You've got to go through those Whitehall processes to make policy. And you cannot just execute it, you know, at the click of a finger. So I think all of the processes have been implemented in relation to all of the core areas you would expect uh, based on the government's Uh, messaging and and narratives, uh, but you just got to give it time to go through the machine. 
when presumably that issue of giving it time, you're dealing with pretty complex regulatory, technical aspects of regulation, sort of suggests that actually for government, it's quite useful to have the voice of business and investors explaining in detail what the issues are around certain elements of regulation, what is uh, you know worth changing, what is worth doing things differently with regards to um, uh, certain regulations, or where actually you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Lila, we've sort of seen, I suppose, kind of as I was saying with Northern Ireland, some kind of pretty tangible sort of sort of demonstrations of what the trade-offs are between. Uh, the UK wanting to diverge or wanting to take powers to diverge um, and then kind of the political impact of that and precisely how it threads that needle. With your perspective as being a you know a former special advisor in the Northern Ireland office, how do you see the situation evolving with regards to Northern Ireland and uh, domestic policy divergence? Yeah, I, I think that presents a very immediate kind of problem to some some types of divergence, particularly in areas like agri-food, which are kind of some of the most obvious areas um, for for divergence in the sense that there's a clear potential benefit to um, to UK um, agricultural sectors, but there's also a kind of um, there's a, there's a, a, detail, a sort of regulatory framework that's very much been shaped by the EU till this point. So there's kind of a natural point to sort of review and consult on those measures. Uh, as Joe says, it kind of begins to go through the sausage machine. But actually, the fact is, at the end of that, there is going to be a kind of wrestling with what the implications of this are for, for the existing checks that are in Northern Ireland. And at the moment, the government seems to be running a a parallel process on these two things, sort of both led actually, you know, both on the opportunities and also um, trying to um, minimise some of these um, kind of tensions with regard to to Northern Ireland. And, and they've not actually sort of yet formed a cohesive picture. I think the hope in government is probably that, that the Northern Ireland issues can, and particularly around checks, can be minimised, and then they can begin to bring forward some of these um, some of these new areas of regulatory divergence. But I think the reality is that it will be much more messy than that, uh, and that will be present a kind of immediate immediate issue. Uh, so, what are the mechanisms that the government is relying on, and how it's organising itself to? deliver these sorts of changes, Joe. Um, are there particular structures that they're putting in place? Um, and if so, what? Yeah, so until recently, actually until the end of last year, this sort of work was being commissioned by the XO committee, uh, which is the exit operations committee um, of the cabinet. And in February, a new subcommittee of the cabinet that is actually under NERT uh, which is the National Economic Recovery Committee, uh, has been established called the Better Regulation Committee. And this is being chaired by the Chancellor. And recently it commissioned all government departments to report on all of the areas where they think there could be scope for divergence uh, and opportunities to have better regulation uh, to the advantage of the UK economy. And I guess one of the issues is that there is not really a, a sort of permanent staff for this sort of activity, because obviously it's the first time it's being conducted. And with the changes in ministerial responsibilities with, with Lord Frost now taking over responsibility for this sort of policy area and, and Brexit divergence more generally, 
there's a new unit that has been established in the cabinet office called the Brexit Opportunities Unit. And I think that this will be staffing uh, the Better Regulation Cabinet Subcommittee. There's going to be about 30 members of staff, all of whom are going to be working on this full time, uh, marshalling the work of government departments uh, to get things over the line like we've been talking about, but actually implementing it, delivering it, making sure that it is implemented. I was going to say, I mean, uh, the, the, the work of the Better Regulation Committee sort of sounded like something that was sort of a potentially duplicative of what was happening with the Brexit Opportunities Unit. Um, but it sounds like there is actually a bit more coordination there than, than had maybe been expected. Um, and then obviously kind of, I mean, Lila, you, I mean, we, we, a lot of the people listening to this podcast would have seen the, uh, seen the report authored by Ian Duncan Smith, Theresa Villiers and George Freeman recently as part of a new unit looking at uh, regulation and post-Brexit opportunities. You know, I think it was quite a long 150 page report in the end with about sort of a good 15 or so pages uh, thicket of uh, recommendations. How seriously is the government taking that work and how is it thinking about how it uses MPs to drive this agenda? So I think that um, particular kind of task force report was about sort of channeling MPs desire to see kind of um, and engage with the opportunities of Brexit. But I think what's quite interesting is sort of aside from whether or not those recommendations will be taken forward by government, which I'm sure some of them will be, because I'm sure that they sort of align with um, some of some of the action the government's already pursuing. For example, um, there was a kind of um, focus on the opportunities in um, on batteries um, for electric vehicles, which is something the government's already kind of beginning to engage on. Similarly, on on data and AI, these are kind of future re regulatory opportunities for the government in terms of the fact that the EU is pursuing kind of quite quite strict regulation and there are opportunities there for for the UK government to um, produce something a bit more agile so I think there's definitely kind of an interest in government in some of this stuff kind of anyway I think the slightly more interesting thing was that it didn't really capture um, many other MPs attention I think the reality is that Brexit is not the hot topic it, it political topic it once was. Um, I think the fact of kind of COVID recovery and net zero becoming kind of higher up the political agenda um, has just le led to Brexit just sort of taking up a, a, a bit less parliamentary debate and time. Um, and it, it, I think that reflects kind of how we're thinking about it when we're talking to businesses and clients. Like there is a kind of opportunity to look at sort of post-Brexit advantages, but we need to kind of think about how these can be expressed in line with other government objectives so how does this post-brexit opportunity also contribute to government goals around leveling up achieving net zero recovering from covid and there are clearly kind of synergies here like as i just mentioned there's obviously the kind of batteries issue there's some there's some synergy on sort of data and tech and, and the use of data particularly in public services but but we need to be thinking about how these things kind of begin to fit together rather than just thinking, great, this is a good example of something we can do now we've left the EU. Because frankly, I think there are things that are higher up the political agenda and also there's there's limited bandwidth in, in, in government. So therefore, there's a kind of need to, to, to sort of kill two birds with one stone and sort of think about what 
what might be achieved beyond just beyond just being able to say this is something we can now do because we've left the EU. It sounds like the, the government, I mean, that's still going to be a kind of a useful political line for the government when it thinks about trying to kind of maintain the red wall voters or the, the Brexit supporting voters that, you know, make up a large chunk now of the Conservative electoral base. And I mean, it looks like looking at the Queen's speech that that is something that the government recognises. I mean, all this being said, it's going to be a useful political set of points for the government to make uh, when it is announcing policy or it is uh, announcing sort of political achievements that it's done uh, as a consequence of the freedoms that Brexit has offered the UK. Uh, and that's going to be something that's going to continue to be important for their voter base, whether it's in the red wall or the commuter belts of big cities that, frankly, often did vote uh, leave rather than um, rather than remain as some commentators suggest. Um, how is the government looking to take advantage of this in future, Lila? So I think you're totally right. It's obviously really important in their kind of communications and their talking points around um, some of the bigger pieces of legislations and reforms that they're pursuing. So there are six bills in the Queen's speech that explicitly relate to Brexit opportunities. And that was within the Queen's speech that they said that. But actually, I think it's largely through the implementation that will be, understand both the kind of impact and utility of these both as kind of mechanisms for the government in kind of um, continuing to shore up their support, but also for businesses who are thinking about the way in which they might be able to receive new R&D funds or be able to um, be able to um, engage with bits of the government's agenda. So I think that's particularly true on, on state aid and procurement, as Joe mentioned. I think there were kind of big ideas and big intentions that sat behind um, the kind of initial announcement of reform in it, these areas. But actually, on both of these areas, what we've seen is it, a sort of green paper, well, it's a white paper, um, which we don't know, quite yet know how it will be kind of actualised and particularly kind of what, what that will mean in practice. But there is also some political risk, isn't there, around deregulation or, sorry, deregulation is actually sort of falling into... Uh, one of the traps that we suggest that the government um, is actually rather keen to avoid, uh, where doing things differently is actually much more about, well, doing things differently, and it's not explicitly deregulatory. I think, I mean, I think it, it's possible we may well start to see this a little bit more with the battles that are going to be coming um, uh, over uh, agri-food and the reform of the farm subsidy system. Joe, could you just flesh out a little bit more for us? So what these issues look like, uh, politically speaking? Yeah, well, I think you're, you're right. You know, doing things differently is often looked at through the lens of abolishing EU regulations in order to create a more benign environment for business. But I don't think that's always going to be the case because some of what the government is currently working on is probably going to go above and beyond EU regulation. If you look at the history of Whitehall and its implementation of EU directives, it's always gold-plated them. And it has done so far more than other member states and, and all academic studies into that uh, clearly show it. And I don't think that overall Whitehall mindset is suddenly going to vaporize overnight. So yes, when we're coming to, for example, environmental policy, and we look at, for example, the new uh, UK emissions trading scheme, which is obviously 
something that has been set up to replace uh, the UK's membership of the EU emissions trading scheme. Are we going to see, for example, more sectors of the economy subject to it? I think so, because it aligns with the government's net zero commitments. And it is something that could be internationally beneficial for the UK in terms of diplomacy. And I think also we could look at a more maximalist regime on corporate sustainability disclosures. Is this something that the UK government is going to do? All of these things are probably not the most benign thing for them to pursue uh, for business, but uh, it is nonetheless doing things differently. I mean, we, we've spoken a lot as well about how the UK is planning to do things differently. But uh, I think, you know, when we kind of initially started sort of looking at this work and producing you know, the report that kind of kicked this series off, I think we highlighted the fact that, uh, yeah, the UK can try and achieve the uh, different ends um, using different means, and it can try and achieve the same ends using different means. But actually, an important part of divergence is the EU um, trying to achieve uh, the same ends or different ends by different means to what the UK is doing. I mean, Lila, is there, you know, other are there anything that is there anything that businesses investors should be paying attention to uh, when it comes to how the EU is starting to do things differently from the UK? Yeah, so I think there are there are obviously quite a few areas, but I just highlight one because I think it's a good example of how the EU is beginning to approach kind of newer technologies um, in a slightly different way to how we would assume that the UK will now that they are out, outside of the EU. So, for example, on AI, the European Commission um, released its draft strategy last year um, towards AI, which will ultimately amount in kind of legislation and then regulation that has to be taken forward. And it it, it suggested quite a binary approach to AI, basically um, first kind of dividing um, different types of AI between low risk and high risk, and then also restricting its um, application by sector. Um, and I think kind of the the sector and industry would say, actually, that's not the best way to approach it in the sense that, that actually some of the most high risk applications can kind of be the most rewarding. So we've particularly seen that kind of in the UK um, in, in medicine and health. So there's an example of a, of a new um, kidney diagnostic um, process that has only been possible because of AI. And under the EU's rules, that now wouldn't be um, possible, but clearly the UK is likely to use that type of example to argue for that perhaps you need a more agile regulatory framework, maybe that, that there's a sort of case for, for a more sort of regulatory sandbox approach where you look at what might suit different parts of the sector. And I think there's probably quite a lot of scope for that, given that we that there has already been kind of work on this within within the NHS, and also given that we kind of have the structures in place um, around the sort of office for AI. Um, which which was kind of set up specifically to begin to look at these issues. Um, perhaps when it was set up, it wasn't envisaged that this would be in a totally different way to the EU, but that's now the kind of opportunity um, that's there. Clearly, the EU will make this sort of opposite case that that this risk-based risk, um, um, base regulation is proportionate, but, but it will be for the UK to think about whether um, it wants to pursue a similar approach. Well, and I think this is going to be something that's going to take up a lot of people's time, uh, energy and brain power over the coming uh, over the coming years, when it seems that these arguments around divergence, these arguments around doing things differently, you know, you often end up with the most material changes 
uh, in areas that are new, in uh, parts of industries which are disruptive, in parts of industries which have been subject to kind of innovation, whether that's gene editing, whether that's AI, uh, whether that's even sort of new areas to policy popping up, such as uh, vaccine approval, um, which I don't think anyone had really sort of uh, anticipated the importance of uh, in June 2016, five years ago, uh, when the Brexit vote was taken. Um, I think just as a kind of a, a sort of a, a final sort of recap, uh, I think it's worth, um, as we think about this, I think it seems to me that uh, understanding that there's a there's there's kind of a political form of divergence, and that's still going to be powerful, and that's still going to be potent, and is a uh, useful um, aspect of messaging to hold, uh, but also secular divergence, and divergence as a consequence of uh, newness, either new institutions, new industries, uh, new political challenges, is probably going to be the longer lasting uh, and most substantial form. Uh, or force that's going to push divergence along, providing regulatory uh, technical knowledge of that is probably going to be an area where businesses and investors can um, provide real value to, 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 to policymakers in that process. And also just to remind people as well that it's Brussels as much as London, uh, and it is, uh, it's never going to be just a one-way street, and that actually operating on either sides of the channel is going to be kind of a, an important thing in future uh, when it comes to uh, how regulation is uh, modelled and shaped. Um, if any of these issues that we've been talking about today are affecting you uh, or where you feel that you are particularly exposed to this, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find our contact details uh, uh, for, 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 for me, Lila and Joe, um, and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Uh, and you can find as well uh, the compilation of calls, documents, blogs uh, that we've made as part of this Doing Things Differently series uh, on the website uh, where there is plenty of reading and we get into a great deal of detail uh, on, uh, on subject areas. Um, Look, thanks, Joe. Thank you, Lila. And thank to you for listening. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.